Hello and welcome to Unfiltered, an intellectual podcast. Sebastian Gorka resigned from the White House. What he was really talking about in his resignation letter was saying that President Trump was this Hail Mary pass to help save the republic. And he was definitely not a fan of Hillary Clinton winning the presidency. And what he was saying was that, you know, since November 8th, the people in the White House have not necessarily all been on board with the Make America Great agenda. There are a handful of people in there, but it seems like there have been a lot of detractors uh, against the uh, MAGA agenda. And this became abundantly clear to Gorka when Trump was giving his speech on his Afghanistan strategy. And not once did that speech include radical Islam or radical Islamic terrorism. And this phrase was really what Trump had campaigned on. He was saying, we're no longer going to be politically correct. We're going to start saying radical Islamic terrorism. And and he, Trump really had critiqued President Obama for not using this term when he was addressing any type of terrorist attack or topic related to terrorism. So on the back of this, Gorka has said that, you know, we have so many detractors within the White House and you have this fake news industrial complex that is always on a hunt for Trump 24-7. And like Bannon, Gorka finds that it's going to be more useful if he helps fight this war against the fake news and against the detractors inside the White House as a private citizen outside of the White House. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to have uh, Gorka fighting this essentially media war with Steve Bannon. And so first, I think I just want to touch upon Trump's Afghanistan speech. So I think this omission of radical Islam or radical Islamic terrorism from the speech is quite significant. And it seems like Gorka is really adding a lot of light to uh, what Mike Cernovich had been reporting on. Cernovich had a lot of critical pieces on uh, National Security Advisor, HR, General H.R. McMaster, and he was essentially calling McMaster a globalist. And along with that, he was, he was saying that we should be concerned that McMaster is running a lot of the natural security conversation within the Trump administration. And he, he's also reported that McMaster um, has been known to be like an Islamist apologist. And this may be why radical Islam was omitted from the speech that Trump gave. And so this this is a little concerning. To win a war while apologizing for your enemy. Ooh, that's yeah, tough. so, yeah, you, you can't apologize to your, to your enemy. And the whole point of saying radical Islamic terrorism is to define the enemy. Yeah, unless it's your wife. <laughs> but then I guess you're not winning the war. Well, you probably wouldn't be marrying your enemy in the first place. <laughs> that's true. The mistakes we make. <laughs> Precisely. And so... So perhaps this is this should be a cause for concern as uh, who Trump is getting his advice from. Gorka was also critical that, you know, this idea of just increasing troops again in Afghanistan, it's just a resurgence of the flawed thinking of the last 16 years. And Gorka was mentioning this in, a, in an interview, I believe, with, uh, uh, with Savage. And so I th- it, it, it's this whole idea of... You know, a surge wasn't able to 
uh, get rid of the terrorists in Afghanistan. And there was over 100,000 plus troops we had in there. And Afghanistan has really just been a military mess. You know, the, the Soviets tried to go in there decades ago, allured by the uh, vast uh, deposits of natural gas and oil and other uh, iron ore, copper, or as well as rare earth metals and some uranium. Extending the USSR just a little bit some more. Southward. Yeah, exactly. And, and as you know, like the USSR was known for its uh, deep reserves of natural gas and oil. So it was only natural for them to also want to expand their natural resource empire down into Afghanistan. Just a, a, d a desert land of mostly mountains and um, some people that are living in some time between, I guess, um, antiquity and the Middle Ages. And it seemed like an easy operation, but uh, it didn't turn out to yeah, be the case. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to really classify Afghanistan as a country when maybe you have Kabul that's under government control, but the rest of the country is really just under tribal control and significant portions right. of it are ruled by the Taliban very difficult to access territory, even with uh, modern weaponry. Um, and of course, the United States, we, we played no small role by arming the Taliban uh, or the Mujahideen with Stinger missiles so that we could shoot down the Russian uh, fighter jets. And so you have a, a multi-million dollar fighter jet versus uh, a multi-thousand dollar, if that, uh, or multi-hundred dollar missile. Um, and the, the economic toll adds up quite quickly. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm sure, you know, once the CIA got involved back then that really started to help lay down the roots for creating sophisticated terror financing operations. Uh, because mm -hmm. I'm sure the CIA had to send the, the money and arms uh, covertly to the Mujahideen. You know, it's an interesting question that I haven't seen in the news. I wonder um, what the Russians' uh, part is in Afghanistan. Um, they still have the quasi-Soviet Union, so they have a lot of military influence in Central Asia and surrounding states, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan. Tajikistan uh, has a very long border with Afghanistan. Um, and so I wonder if it's payback, if there's some kind of uh, counter uh, intel or, or counter military operations within Afghanistan. Um, very interesting talk, topic that I never hear it talked about in the news. Yeah. But uh, I do well, digress. I think, I think Russia today has talked about it, and they're certainly critical about uh, the, the new mission of the U.S. to continue the war in Afghanistan. Okay. And so I think they're also, they're, they're probably, um, I think they've brought on an analyst talking about how some of the move is just for the CIA's, CIA um, allegedly having covert operations and running the opium production in Afghanistan because it's actually more profitable <laughs> for farmers to produce opium than other uh, than other crops such as you know produce needed for food hmm. sounds like Harlem <laughs> perhaps <laughs> and you know it seems like I mean I've got Afghanistan is also a major opium production center I think just about 60% of the world's opium comes from Afghanistan and as we all know uh, opium is a key ingredient in producing heroin and in the US where we're going through a quite a major a heroin epidemic, you know, but, true. but again, we, we digress. And I think, uh, I think what, uh, going back to what the purpose behind this Afghanistan mission from president Trump is that I think a strategy is, you know, we see all this mineral wealth or at least potential mineral wealth in Afghanistan, and that might be sufficient to defray the cost of the war. And so based on, uh, I think this is about a decade old study. There's, roughly a trillion dollars worth of minerals within Afghanistan. And this is just assuming uh, 
just a normal market value of of, of these minerals. And uh, according to uh, a Forbes article, it's saying that the uh, value of the iron ore is set at uh, about $420 billion. Um, and then you also have uh, about $240 billion of copper. Um, and, and so a big... That's some serious it's some cash. some serious cash, but the problem is with the, the typical analysis and the, the author of the Forbes article does a good job. Uh, this is Tim Warstall, and he does a good job of explaining that, you know, this is just the market value of these commodities, but it doesn't uh, take into account the amount uh, of costs involved in actually, you know, going extracting the commodity, transporting it. All oh. of that is very capital intensive. It must be huge. huge and you need infrastructure and think about the security yes, you have to yeah so yeah. you're probably gonna have to have the security force fighting up the taliban you need you need very significant security you need force. infrastructure in order to move the minerals from the mine to the rest of the world and just think about the security right. costs of that and you don't probably don't even have exactly. sufficient infrastructure in the first place in afghanistan you also need no you need power plants for electricity in order to uh, run your operation and so all these costs tend to add up and you know maybe other mines which have much better security and infrastructure all are not necessarily profitable so it's hard to really make it a true assessment right now on the profitability of these mines and at the end of the day if we're going to defray the cost of the war as president trump said these mines need to be profitable to us so i think the true value that the u.s can extract from these Mine is probably less than a trillion dollars. I would imagine. It's it's very curious why there would be some kind of strategic value in Afghanistan, especially since the Soviet Union is no longer an issue, so we don't need to destabilize that issue, that, that area. And, and prior, um, it was essentially, it was a destabilization effort. It wasn't, um, there were no intentions to control the region. Uh, which seems to be the intention now. It, it tends to look like it's um, it's a military-industrial complex uh, demand that the military-industrial complex needs, you know, fresh capital to keep it building weapons, uh, supplying soldiers, making people lots of money, military contractors, that kind of thing. That, that's what it looks like from the outside. Um, so you don't have a lot of ROI, but you have a lot of interested people, perhaps in special interest groups, that have a lot of pressure. That's the way it looks from the outside. I think I think a point that we're missing though is that there are there's lithium within the country. There's also other rare earth metals that are needed to uh, produce our sophisticated weapon systems. And there's also uranium within the country. So there is some strategic value. Uranium might be nice. Yeah, the uranium would be would be quite quite useful. I, I believe there, there was a statistic going out there saying that China controls a, about 90% of the planet's rare earth production capacity. Uh, this is from a Vice article from June of 2013. Do we have a definition of the rare earth materials? What they're calling rare earth metals is Sumerian and uh, neodymium. And so okay. like the neodymium, for example, is used in the F-22 Raptor jets. As part of the jet, These this uh, rare earth metal is used for the laser sites. And it seems like okay. uh, Afghanistan is the only major supplier of Sumerian that's not controlled by China. Okay. So there might be some kind of uh, geopolitical play in terms of um, rare earth materials, which is the definition of economics, the competition over scarce resources. Yes, exactly. And so 
what we really haven't probably been paying enough attention to, and I think this has probably been talked about within the defense circles, but maybe not within the uh, public uh, discussion, is that you know China has been doing a lot of uh, mineral colonization. So they're often Africa investing in all these different mines in order to take the natural resources from Africa to fund their own hegemonic ambitions. And, and so, right, the new mercantilists. Yes. And so while they've been doing that very secretively, it seems like the public discussion has been focused on other topics. And this is concerning because, you know, if China is controlling 90 to 95% of rare earth production, that and these are needed for sophisticated weapon system, this creates a, a concern about about America's military yeah. future and if we're going to remain as like the, the number one military power in the world. That's true. They can withdraw supply at any moment. Um, which means that either the cost goes skyrockets for these, uh, which means our military industrial costs skyrocket, which means the taxpayer has to pay for it if they can, um, or they can restrict uh, export altogether and we'll have to find substitutes, which if we, if we did, that's okay, but that's costly. And usually if we're using it um, at the present, it's probably the best value. So I can see how those things would be of concern. Yeah, so just to add more color on what these rare earth metals are used for. So uh, the Defense Media Network says that uh, these rare earth metals are used for are precision guided munitions, lasers, radar and sonar, and communications and displays. So as you can probably imagine, that these are very important functions to have in a sophisticated military. And so as we were saying, there's this is probably right. what the the geopolitical angle is in Afghanistan. And talking about China, you know, Gorka even mentioned in his resignation letter that uh, with President Trump in charge, he's still confident that he, that he, referring to President Trump, can stop communist China's hegemonic ambitions. And it's important to note that, you know, I believe um, in the previous decade, uh, the Chinese metallurgic group had uh, struck a deal with uh, the Afghanistan of uh, the Afghani army for a copper mine in 2007 and as part of the deal essentially China was saying that their investment would not only include the mine but it would also have power plants roads and railways but you can imagine that considering Afghanistan's precarious security situation nothing is really happening with this mine but the important point here is that you know, in the middle of this war, because we were in there in the early 2000s, China was still taking advantage of the resources over the U.S. This is very significant as for right. as the points we laid out earlier. I have no idea how China got those contracts for, and I'd be actually really interested to know. But it does seem a little bit uh, curious that another country is benefiting financially f uh, from this invasion, which is costing the United States incredible amounts of, uh, as they say, blood and treasure. Um, and China seems to enjoy this kind of security that's provided, if, if one can call it that. I've heard that, uh, you know, uh, security doesn't really extend outside the, the borders of Kabul. And within Kabul, it's not you need to drive around in uh, an armored vehicle. Um, well, the point so is, it is they curious how China has been able to extract resources. those minerals and those resources. Uh, 
No, they haven't had access because we've been okay. waging a war against so, the so Taliban. So they haven't had there. access. Um, but I think since the war's you know, been going on. Going okay. to your point of like how are the Chinese able to get these contracts? Yeah. We can take Africa for example. So they come in and they promises infrastructure investments and investments in other companies and things like that. And you can imagine many African countries are also susceptible to corruption. So. I, I don't think it's beyond the Chinese Communist Party's ambitions right. and wheelhouse to to bribe officials and to bribe like local power brokers in these countries. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, the the other thing, from what I understand, they're they're open and fair bidding processes in in the country. Um, however, I, I can't really agree with the principle um, because if if the United States is going to you know un- spending untold fortunes. To, to stabilize this country or to, to operate in this country at the taxpayer's expense. Um, I, I don't see how the taxpayer has any incentive to really continue that operation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the effects on terrorism to me are dubious, extremely dubious. To finance that without having any kind of return, um, it just, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bit beyond me. I, I think the international principles of uh, neoliberalism can be suspended in these cases. Um, if we're going to be there in the first place. Yeah, I think place, it's kind which, of foolish um, to think that my personal opinion, the United States or NATO idea. in general can defeat terrorism in the world. I mean, it, there's not simply a military solution to this. Like, we can't just go in and completely invade Sudan or or Yemen and just expect that now that we're in charge, we we have ended the terrorist insurgency. It's, I mean, President Trump even touched touched on this with, in a speech talking about how this is yeah. also a military political uh diplomatic economic war we have to face and i think at the end of the day it's like you're probably never going to be able to wipe out terrorism you can probably strike devastating blows to the major terrorist organizations but this is an ideological war and there's limited uh, tools that the u.s has in itself the way you you win an ideological war is that it has to come from the grassroots and that's really going to be left up to uh, the Muslim world, and particularly Saudi Arabia, Absolutely. since that's the center of Islamic thought. And and I think it, the the whole idea is like nation building is really yeah. not going to work. Trump set, seems like he was cautious and warning that he doesn't really want to pursue nation building. This seems like more. This is more of President Trump saying, "Take the oil, take the oil," and he was advocating for that in Iraq. And it seems like. He's going down a similar path in Afghanistan, but the question is: is what is the feasibility of actually being able to extract these minerals, oil, and natural gas? Yeah, where's the oil? Oil is easy to extract. Yeah, oil in Iraq, you know, you just ship it right out to the Strait of Hormuz, and then uh, you have to deal with Iran, which is quite complicated. But it seems it's a bit of an easier extraction process. I'm looking at a Google Maps image of Afghanistan right now, and it's surrounded by Iran. Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, a little bit China, and a long border with Pakistan. The only friends we have in the region, besides maybe some lukewarm alliance with Tajikistan, is Pakistan. And we, we both know that's a double-handed deal. And um, I guess the best way we could ship things out to, to a port to hit international markets um, would be south to the, um, uh, to the Arabian Sea. Um, other than that, you're looking at essentially the Himalayas, Himalayan mountains on one side and a bunch of very unfriendly people on the other. I don't think Iran's going to be party to shipping, you know, uh, American products through, uh, through its borders. So it's a tricky, tricky business. 
to get the goods out. You no, know, I mean, per- not, not easily. <laughs> Lots of trucks in the, at the bottom yeah, of the mountains, you know, and I've seen it. I've seen it yeah, with my own it's, eyes. It's quite challenging. And, and so I imagine, absolutely mind boggling. You, you know, extracting the minerals is going to be difficult, but building the infrastructure is another challenge. And if you, if you, and if you, if you're only way of moving it is through Pakistan. It's a problem because, you know, China's been investing heavily into infra- in infrastructure in Pakistan. They're building ports, they're building highways. It's part of... M, do you remember Lawrence of Arabia? It's a movie about, it's a, movie about a, a British guy who goes to Jordan and he leads an Arab revolt. But the, the first thing that he did in order to smash the Ottoman Empire was to blow up the railroads. So you build some infrastructure. The Turks had infrastructure all over the Gulf. That's how they transported material in and out of the Gulf. And that's how they maintained the Ottoman Empire at the late stages after industrialization. And um, so all that uh, Lawrence and his tribe of um, Arabs and Bedouins had to do were to find railroads and blow them up in secluded places, um, preferably while trains were going by. And then they would loot the trains. Um, That seems like something that Al-Qaeda or... The Mohajideen yeah, or I mean, ISIS you, or whoever is spending time in the region If you take out the infrastructure, if you take out the supply lines, you can't have much of an, a military or an army if you can't feed your troops or arm them yeah. well. Yeah, and so that means we have to protect and extremely those. Extremely expensive. So it's very difficult to protect a road that's a thousand miles long. You know, I mean, very expensive. Yeah, so it, it seems like Afghanistan is just a cost sink. It's very hard for me to wrap my mind around the strategic value of Afghanistan, besides the fact of just, oh, geez, Iran is next door. Iran, Afghanistan is essentially a Persian state. They speak uh, uh, a version of Farsi, Dari. Uh, it used to be the Persian corridor, which extends all the way up to Tajikistan until it hits the mountains. Um, it, it, I, I think one of the big strategic uh, worries would be that Iran could move right in and then Iran could very easily provide the security and extract those resources, and we're worried about a hegemonic Iran. However, this seems like you know a, a short-term hedge. Um, as Sebastian Gorka said, we have operational objectives without ever defining a strategic victory uh, or defining the strategic victory conditions that we're fighting for. And it's that complete victory that I think is beyond reach. Um, and that's something that's really, really yeah, complicated. Yeah, that, that's the issue. And we have to answer some hard questions. There was absolutely no mention of what was our strategic goal in Afghanistan. I mean, the speech mainly just covered, you know, we're going to s- switch from a time-based system to a conditions-based system without ever, you know, explaining what those conditions were. So on one part, I can understand as being unpredictable, but I think at some point, or at least hopefully, the President Trump understands what the strategic objectives are. And I think like even if this ends up turning into a debacle, it's still very early within the Trump administration yeah. that if, that he still has time to uh, pivot from this and perhaps even leave Afghanistan if it turns out that this is really just like an unwinnable situation for him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I do worry that it's uh, it's very expensive. Um and I feel like he would have a lot of political capital among the people. I think the left and the right are in favor of uh, drawing down the war. And I think the only people that would really worry about it are the people in a, strate- a position to look at it, uh, a foreign policy strategy. And I think the purse is probably a big one. You want to keep the military industrial complex running. It's just bureaucratic growth. It's everything that Republicans and libertarians fight against that, to keep the government small because 
bureaucracies uh, and organizations of any type yeah, have well, that, that a would demand be to grow. It just seems to be intrinsic. It's a natural uh, principle that we see. Yeah, the neocons tend to like some growth. If it's defense industrial spending, they're very happy with that. But that, that, uh, that maybe that has to do with the growth of their personal uh, bank accounts. An influence. Yeah, yeah, I think I it, can, it can help. That. It can so change I, your I mean, perspective. I think what we should you know? really take away from this is that maybe this is, as we said, President Trump's uh, moment of saying we should take the oil. We'll see if you know this. you can actually realize anything close to the $1 trillion uh, value of, of these minerals. And if yeah, we're actually can successful and uh, in achieving our geopolitical goals in Afghanistan, we're going to need a new Lawrence of Arabia. M. We're going to have to ride in there. Certainly, on, certainly. On, and uh, I think white horses and uh, fix that. And, and I think, like, as long as uh, the only solution I see, President Trump shows that he's being loyal to his base, he won't lose too much political support over this. But I think what time is really going to tell if he, if you know, if the strategy doesn't work, if if he says, you know, this isn't working, we're going to pivot from this, you know. We tried it. It didn't work out, so we'll move on. And it's similar to how President Trump responded to healthcare. It's like, you know, we tried to uh, pass it. We couldn't get it through, so we'll move on to something else. It's very pragmatic. And I now, like so I, I don't want to get too it's sidetracked from attitude. this. And I think what we yeah. um, it's interesting to focus on is what is Gorka's new role within the media? So Yeah, Sebastian Gorka and Steve Bannon. I think this is a perfect segue because they're kind of... Um, they're driving now from outside of the administration. Um, and Gorka mentioned specifically, it's it's one of the points in his resignation letter that was, uh, I guess, leaked to the Federalist, um, was that uh, the Afghan speech did, as you mentioned, uh, not mention radical Islam and radical Islamic terrorism, which was, as you said, one of those key points of the Trump election. Um, political correctness was something that he railed against, and he purposefully defied the conventions of political correctness to tremendous fanfare. I mean, it, it, just, it was like it was like there was this built up pressure that the concept of political correctness was was silencing people. And when you can't express yourself, you repress yourself. So you have this this pressure that builds up. And this guy kind of cut the seal of the bag and all of this pressure exploded out. And uh, people felt so relieved and things changed. And now, you know, uh, radio personalities and news News anchors are started, depending on the nation, on the, on the uh, network, are starting to use thing uh, phrases and, and speak in ways that are politically incorrect, and it's generating incredible grassroots support because I think it's tapping that repression. And the question is, how much repression is left? And I think Sebastian Gorka is probably uh, the most politically incorrect, yet perhaps one of the most analytically correct uh, personalities that I've seen on the media. And we've discussed this before in private. It seems like, you know, other personalities will have little flurries with the media. Sometimes, you know, they get a, a good strike and they hit the media on the chin and then nobody knows where it'll go. And it's boom, lights on. You know, the fake it's the fake media narrative pops up again. But it seems like when Gorka goes in there, he's a heavyweight slugger. We've got Mike Tyson and he's going for the knockout blow in, in every in every spot, in every round. Yeah, you know maybe i need to be the president's put bullet sometimes and and as you were mentioning it was always the knockout when he went on on media and that really lit up a lot of conservative media i think the ba the base you know the base so wanted a brawler and a president i loved and it so when I they see so someone who's working within the administration going and brawling with the media that really excites them. Totally. And, and, and it's so here's my feeling. 
I, I like I originally like the idea that Gorka was in the media, uh, was in the White House, and that gives him kind of gravitas. The media is always looking for something from the White House because the White House is quite uh, they're not bullied by the media and they're tight lipped. And um, so that gives him this kind of he, he can go on any station at any time because they want something, anything from the White House. And then when they get it, Gorka just, you know, you know throws them around like a rag doll. If they had fair questions, I'm sure Gorka would treat them fairly. Um, so, I, so I really like that dynamic, but the, it appears that it's too difficult within the White House to get the kind of traction uh, within the administration that, that personalities like Gorka and Bannon want. Um, so they feel that they have to fight the war from the outside. Now, this is, this is my perception. Um, what they're looking to do is create uh, media campaigns to place pressure public pressure on the White House, which may, we can look at this maybe with um, the gay issue with um, with uh, President Obama, right? Uh, he was essentially uh, anti-gay for the beginning of his presidency. And then at some point, the pressure built to such an extent that it could no longer yield. And he became uh, completely pro-gay and, and, and the whole LGBTQ, XYZ, the whole thing, right? So um, I think that might be the strategy um, to, to place pressure from outside the White House through a popular uh, movement, a pop, an apparatus through the people, which is wonderful because it's the people that elected Donald Trump, and it's the people from the people, and as Gorka says, the people's house, not the White House. It's a be beautiful phrase. It's the people that, that led this man to victory against the massive and dark institutions um, that we call the establishment or the swamp. They were unsuccessful. And so I think by leveraging the people in, in crafting a message that's pure directly from these, these two powerful personalities to the media, they can get more of a groundswell to, to pressure the White House in the right direction. And if Trump is um, as MAGA as he says he is, and I think he is because he's been Make America Great Again uh, since the 80s, and he's been pretty consistent in his message since the 80s, um, that will make it a lot easier for Trump to uh, guide the institutional momentum uh, through a popular mandate. And so if that's the case, they're making a, an intelligent uh, strategic decision, I support it. But it does say something or it doesn't say enough about, as Gorka would say, the White House intrigue. What's really going on in the White House? It's it's a fascinating story. Yeah, I mean, um, it just I'd love to know like a bit a more about insight it. as to what is, what is going on going in the on White House. House. I mean, we can even go to when uh, Gorka had uh, presented his resignation letter, and then there were uh, media reports that instead of resigning, uh, Gorka was actually pushed out. And then afterwards, you see this. Uh, article on Breitbart saying that Kelly Sadler, a uh, low-level staffer in the White House, had lied about her credentials to push this inaccurate leaked information to the press about the resignation of Dr. Sebastian Gorka. And in the email, she was saying that essentially that uh, Sebastian Gorka did not resign, but I can confirm he no longer works at the White House. So, and she had quoted herself as being a senior White House official. And it seems like she really got blasted after this because it seems like she and her husband are, are never Trumpers within the administration. Well, I mean, that's what President Trump right. says. You I know, wonder if we can have all these, these people from like the mainstream media will, will try to quote these people who they claim are senior white who who claim that they're senior White House sources. And the we issue is like the sources. people who they're quoting from yeah. either the media don't have come the to information us. or 
don't have the understanding of what what the information means. And, and so, like after uh, Kelly Sadler had put out this right uh, email to to the media, you have people like Jim Acosta from CNN saying. White House of tweeting that what the same quote that White House official says that Gorka did not resign, but he was pushed out. And you have several other mainstream media, big, like well-known personalities also retweeting this, this same myth, essentially. One could even call it they were publishing fake news. And CNN is the most trusted name in news. Yeah, I guess. Fake news. It, it, it happens. Absolutely. You know, it, but I love the idea that fake news um, has become such a catchphrase because before Trump, I think a lot of people knew that the news was lying, but we couldn't articulate it per, per, uh, pro properly in our minds either because it's almost as if the news media presents to us a second consciousness, almost a reflection of ourselves. It's it's a one yeah. to say a false. Well, they don't. They only they right? only re represent the bubble. They're not necessarily representing what most Americans think. Absolutely. Um, and, and to look at it in a different uh, perspective, it almost seems like the news validates our thoughts. If we have thoughts that aren't represented in the news, it seems almost like they're not legitimate. Yet, if, you, if we see them in the news or we see different thoughts in the news and we repeat them or we acquire them, they're somehow extremely legitimate. It's almost as if God spoke through this channel or it's, it's Oz, almighty Oz, who, who, who rules wherever Dorothy's from, right? Or the, the, I guess it's the kingdom of Oz, right? But it's really just a little man behind the curtain that's, that's projecting this image. And it seems like what Trump's been able to do with the, with the fake news narrative, and it's been supported through um, a lot of alternative media, especially online media, um, is they've gotten, instead of revealing, I guess two things have happened. One thing is that they've gotten behind the curtain with uh, the man behind the curtain, and they've used the projector system. So they're kind of command, they're giving Oz an alternative. Um, and they're also criticizing Oz, they're criticizing, you know, the media itself. So now people can conceptualize in a different way um, that that the media is lying. So it's not this kind of double speak where you or you see the media lying, and yet you feel powerless about it. You see, now you have another representation, this is quite abstract, but an another media representation um, that is uh, countering the media, if that makes any sense. And the second yeah. thing that's done is that uh, they're at the same time they're doing that through the media system, they're revealing Oz for what it is, and they're completely depowering the you know the awesome power that the media uh, previously had. Um, so that yeah, is and, fascinating I, and I think having the watch. media lie to the people is not a new concept. I mean, I remember when all the anti-war activists and many people <laughs> on the left accused the media of lying when uh, the U.S. decided to invade Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and you wonder, it's like, so what's happened between early 2000s and now since uh, the mainstream media went from lying to the American public about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and that we must go and invade that country to we must believe what the media is saying because why would they ever publish fake news? Like, And if you question that, you're a heretic. Yeah. And I think the little game is up because they've been bullying and intimidating people um, for a long time to believe a certain thing, basically things within the politically correct narrative. They've been putting everybody on that bubble. And now it's being very, very much challenging, challenged. And um, I think it has a negative effect now. So when they bully people and, and they try to, uh, you know, 
do something negative to people to when they disagree with the narrative people now are just going to the alternative side They're like i don't like i don't like to feel this way i don't like to be pushed around this way i have other options and so they turn off the channel and they, they go somewhere else and so i think that we're an exciting time where this um you know multi-channel uh internet platform is developing where you can you can go to any podcast on youtube you can go to any podcast on itunes um, you can listen to all kinds of different personalities and you can start to develop a, a complex opinion. You can shop for different ideas. Um, and, and so you're not beholden to this big, nasty thing. I think there are days of Yeah, number. I mean, you have to think we about what, what are your options? You, I mean, there are plenty of people tuning into uh, people like Stefan Molyneux or, or Bitchell, Bill Mitchell's uh, Your Voice America. Uh, you have tons of readers at Breitbart and, and Daily Caller and other alternative media sources. And, and that's the point. Now, this is the free market stepping in and saying, you know, you have this established uh, uh, mainstream Precisely. media, which essentially acted as like an uh, oligopoly over news. And you have all these newcomers coming in who are providing a better product. Uh, sometimes you have some people who are more objective. You have other people who are providing just better analysis. And because of this competition, the yep. mainstream media has been losing a lot of eyes. And that's what they need in order to make money. Oh, the market. It's, it's, it's the greatest vindication of free market capitalism because you can see the market working. And you can see how effective a market is when you have many diverse players uh, selling different products that people can choose from, that strong products win, and the competition creates better products. And it shows, you know, what happens when you have this kind of almost socialized monopolistic entity. Um, it's so easy to be corrupt because nobody challenges you. And um, it, it's just, uh, yeah, if anybody needs evidence of, of how well the free market works, um, at least in many sectors, take a look at that, you know. And, and, it, and, it, and it's actually, it's, it's um, how should I say, it's uh, disciplining. It, it, it creates often a just outcome because people... I think collectively inherent have a sense of justice and they like to see things that are correct and things that are good. They can be brainwashed. They can be, you know, inundated with bad stuff, but over time they'll realize that the con they don't like the consequences of that. And if they have choices, choices for better things, I think it's likely that many of them will go, especially after they've been used and abused by, by these, these bad choices. Um, Otherwise, how would humanity survive, you know, over the millennia? How could we possibly survive if we consistently made bad choices? So since we make, you know, we, we in general make good choices when we have to, when we have choice, I think we'll make better choices. Yeah, Not always, I think there was um, also a, a tweet, I think it was either by Gorka or or President Trump or Trump Jr. I can't can't recall at this point, but they were, they were essentially talking about how um, the mainstream media, in a sense, fosters a lot of this division because it brings ratings and and ratings are what brings advertisers to the table so a lot of it is just you know you follow the money yeah you want to see how yeah, the body so works if follow you the follow blood. the money and then you yeah. you get a much better understanding of why it's profitable to to in some senses manufacture hysteria i mean you remember like when president trump was running his campaign he was driving ratings through the roof for every every news outlet both paper right print and as well as the broadcasters like cnn and so now that they saw like yeah. oh, we can make all this money and from and get generate all these ratings from just talking about trump 24 7 we're gonna do that and now that he's president we're gonna act like uh we're outraged at everything president trump says i mean so 
We can even parallel this to what happened under President Obama. A lot of leftists will say, you know, Fox News really jumped on the bandwagon of saying, you know, whatever we're going to report on is going to be anti-President Obama. So let's just assume that critique is true. It seems like the rest of the mainstream media has adopted that same strategy, except that they're on the other side. So they're the ones who want to oppose President Trump. Yeah. You know what I hope? I hope that Steve Bannon and Sebastian Gorka focus on delivering narrative intensive video content to the world um, so that I like the news and the print is important, but I like to see journalism, you know, really documenting how the system works and, and things that we don't understand and telling, telling the stories that we experience in our own lives and that, that are at contrast with the narratives we see in the media, we, you know, um, that, that would be wonderful. Um, but it, it remains to be seen exactly what they're going to do to change the narrative. But Gorka himself did say that he's going to rally against this false American identity that's been produced by the media uh, for public consumption. And so I'm very curious to see um, what what kind of movies are, or what, oh God, I would love to see Hollywood. I don't know if you've seen uh, the movie, what is this? I'm going to look this up right now. 11 hours, I think. Is that the movie, the, the Benghazi movie? Yes. Is it a, the Benghazi movie? I'll leave it at that. Okay. I saw that movie. It was so amazing because it was completely absent of political correctness. And I've spent a lot of time in, in, in the Middle East and it was accurate. It was relatable. It was real. And it felt good. It drew me in. And I am very sensitive to the kind of programming that you see on the media. It's almost like you know, if Macintosh computers or whatever, some some uh, big company probably shouldn't mention that name. Big deal, right? If one of these companies, um, you know, they place an ad in a movie, and it, you all of a sudden you see that product all over the place, right? Now it's more subtle than an infomercial or something, you know, between news segments or something. Um, but it's if you if you tune your eyes to it, you can see what products to place where strategically. Um, the left tends to do this with messaging. I don't know how it works exactly. I'd, I'd be very curious to find out. And if anybody knows how, I would love to hear it. I'm sure it's been investigated. But they start placing these social narratives in in the in the movies, and it's just like advertising, you know. And I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I see it, and I and and I don't like it. It just it it takes away from the plot. It it really seems unnatural. It seems forced. Um, I don't like the conclu logical conclusion of where they're going with this thing. And it, I would say it takes a very, very large percentage of the realism from the film. And that's what I like. That's what, what grips me. I think that's what grips people. It's something that's identifiable. It has some deeper truths and meaning of life. And it's not just a bunch of, you know, commercials put into it, to, which change the narrative ultimately because they're, they're social commercials. Um, and, and this movie had that. And um, I would love to see the right set up a counter to mainstream Hollywood um, and, and produce these movies. I, th I think there's an incredible unmet demand for it, especially, and I, and I mean especially, if um, more people can become aware. And I think, like we were discussing before, this, this awareness would have to come through a mainstream channel. Otherwise, it's just coming from word of mouth. People might not believe it, but when it comes to the news, there's some kind of gravitas there. Um, but people could decode these messages and see them. And I think once you see them, it's like, come on, it's like a commercial. You see a commercial, it's like, will you please stop advertising to me? We, we don't like it. We want to watch the content, whether or not commercials are necessary for funding. There are other funding sources too. Not my case. Um, if I think if more people were aware of this, they would identify it and they would be turned off more and more by it. Um, and that would just stimulate this kind of demand for these alternative movies. And I think that's what's important because that's a very big 
subconscious, uh, uh, I don't know, indicator has a very large sub subconscious effect on the nature of a nation. Um, and so I think that's very important. And I think they're right on that. Gork is a very smart guy and so is Ben and brilliant people. They know how to, how to manage the narrative. Um, and I'm very, yeah, I mean, some of the content you just look at, uh, Netflix had a documentary, which I thought was quite interesting. It was uh, called get me Roger Stone. And it was, I thought it was pretty insightful view into who Roger Stone was. But if you watch the documentary, Roger Stone clearly recognizes that the people who are uh, videotaping him are not on the same page as he is. And the, yeah, exactly. He's a smart guy. <laughs> and, and so it's not like uh, people, it's not like people who like are Alex part Jones. of this uh, right wing populism, pure Americana, go back to what, what that Western civil, civilization is the type of civilization we want. We're very, and the people are America first, economic nationalists. It's not like this movement does not have wealthy people behind it. You have you have billionaires like Robert Mercer. This guy is a, a hedge fund guy. He uh, he's the president of Renaissance Technology, probably the uh, best quantitative hedge fund out there. That is the gold standard when it comes to quantitative hedge funds. You have people like him who are supporting Trump. You have people like Peter Thiel, and Peter Thiel talks a lot about political correctness in Silicon Valley, and that, and he's also a very wealthy uh, tech investor. You have these people uh, and many others who can fund these types of media ventures, and I think if you have an alliance between these right. people who have uh, who are the essentially the owners of capital and you pair them up with Steve Bannon and Sebastian Gorka who are the producers of content you can have a very powerful message going well, forward and then that's how you win the mainstream and you really push out the current players in the mainstream media it's a content so war. we can do it right and the thing is yeah and the thing is I think there's so much demand for reality that although they're much smaller, I would say the Peter Thiels of the world um, and the, you know, the few figures uh, like those at Breitbart are smaller in number than those on the other side because that's the establishment essentially on the other side. I mean, they're all moving leftward. They may be smaller, but the market demand among the people and Trump won among the people. That's where he gained his power despite all the massive you know, intimidation of Oz, right? Um, I think that demand can fuel these industries and make people like Peter Thiel uh, much richer men, you know, and people like uh, Steve Bannon and Sebastian Gorka much more famous and respected and loved men um, and, and also inspire a new generation of people that want to be like them. So I think the industry has the legs to grow exponentially, you know, and that's really that's an exciting prospect. And, and it goes back to those free market principles that we're talking about, because I think in general, people are middle of the road. They have their own common sense and they can they can see what's true and what's not true in their own lives. And they can be manipulated for so long if you have like a monopoly on information. You know, if you take a look at North Korea, they control all the information and it's pretty predictable that everybody has the same opinion. Right. But you start entering the free market and all of a sudden people are going to get, you know, they're going to get wise. They're going to be conscious to this kind of thing. Um, and I think I think that's what's happening. Um, and, and so we're looking at democracy actually save itself, you know, yeah. in, in like the face of potential tyranny. Um, and we're yeah. looking at free market capitalism actually being vindicated at yeah. its darkest yeah. I mean, hour. I think uh, probably you know, superhero fans could probably get on board with making superhero movies great again. But you remember uh, Stan Lee, who's who's Marvel Comics CEO, uh, donated <laughs> to Trump's fundraiser, and he 
and it seems like he is a Trump fan, but I mean, I, I've been seeing the several Marvel movies that have been coming out, like the latest Spider-Man movie has all this social justice warrior programming in it. So you have you have one uh, prominent oh, female God. character, and she's at the, I believe it's the Washington Monument, saying, I'm not going to go up that because it was built by slaves. Okay. Uh, but anyway, going going back to this, you know, Stan Lee is a Trump supporter, and it's I don't think it's too out of the picture if, you know, you have some of these uh billionaires and other wealthy people who are pro-Trumpers to get involved with funding a uh, essentially a more right-wing maybe or just essentially non-social justice warrior corrupted movie. And, and I think the superhero fans and the <laughs> yeah. comic fans are, would love that. And that's the thing. Like, I enjoyed watching Spider-Man, but uh, it was cringy when when you watch these moments where you can clearly see the the social justice warrior programming in there it's not even subtle anymore when they start it seems like it's subtle they introduce one new idea that maybe on the fringe get people as you blast that message over and over again and make it seem like it's acceptable people start thinking oh this behavior is acceptable and then from there you move on to the to the next concept that's on the fringe until you move further and further along that at first you thought uh, you're on one end of the spectrum of what what's acceptable and then you suddenly find yourself on the completely opposite end and at what point do you really have uh, a moral compass of what's right and wrong it's it essentially kind of devolves into this yeah. idea of you know moral relativism perhaps like we can kind of see that with you know, when uh, when the Defense of Marriage uh, Act and this whole idea of bringing in gay marriage was hotly contested. And I think part one of the messages that was coming out of the left was like, oh, it's, it's just gay marriage. There's not going to be a slippery slope. Yeah, just accept it. We're yeah, going and to now, we're going to now that we're in 2017, so I would think it. that a lot, a lot yeah. of people who are on the religious light, right would say, hey, we told you so. Yeah. It, you always know it's a little bit uh, dangerous or insidious when um, when you don't have options. You know, it's like accept this or be decried. You know, be slain. You're blah blah blah, bigot, homophobe. You name it. You know, I, what's the course? And the biggest issue in the past was that the right was playing a gentleman's game. Well, the left understood that this was guerrilla warfare. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're like the we're, you know uh, they're like the American revolutionaries allied with the Indians and you name it, and uh, the yeah. British are like yes we are upright men and we refuse to fight according to those uncivilized. Yeah, and even now you can't even to the to American military in Afghanistan. You have a conventional military force fighting guerrilla warfare, and it's kind of the yeah, exactly. military stymie since we started this invasion yeah yeah we can't do anything we have the humane warfare doctrine and um and it puts our people at risk and if you see the movie that i was mentioning the benghazi movie um th there is a specific scene where the guy is pointing a gun at somebody and it turns out for the movie that that he was correct but he he doesn't want to shoot first even though it's very dangerous and there are other instances where you have basically um uh, a group of guys coming in with kalashnikovs and it's it's obvious that they're going to attack, but they have to hold off because they know if they don't, they'll be tried um, in a military court at home, you know, for this kind of thing. And it's like, imagine, imagine being a soldier and having your life at risk, your, your literal life. And, and you're looking, you're looking at, you know, down the barrel of a gun, so to speak. And 
your word, you can't defend yourself and you can't satisfy your mission because of these kind of abstract rules from abroad. We're all good good people. I think we're moral people. We, we don't want to uh, do things that are unnecessarily excessive or extreme. But um, to be, place our, our soldiers in that position, I just think it's cruel. I really think it's cruel and it, it interferes with their ability to, to do their their, um, their mission. And we can see the results have been somewhat, I mean, we haven't won a war in when was the last war we won? The Second World War that we've won decisively? Maybe we did somewhat well in the, yeah, in the Korean War, not which is actually yet, so still going on. I can't really say we we, we won. <laughs> we'll see. Vietnam Maybe is still seen. a communist country. <laughs> you know. Hold on. <laughs> but just, just to quickly add on that, yeah. I mean, well, what we saw house. when President Trump came into, into the presidency was that he relaxed the rules of engagement, and I think that's partially to can be attributed to the acceleration and victories against the Islamic State. Uh, but go, going back to this uh, idea of the content war, the, the problem in the past was, as we were saying, that the right and the traditional establishment Republicans were fighting a gentleman's game when it was actually supposed to be more guerrilla warfare. But now with President Trump, he really changed Right. The the rules of engagement for the right. He came in and he was a brawler. True. That's really what the yeah. right wing wanted. They wanted a brawler to come <laughs> yeah. out. And in boxing, that's the thing. If if you're fighting a boxer, brawl. That's what they say. And it, it apparently goes the other way. If you're fighting a brawler, box. But I don't know. I think we, we understand the point you're Go trying ahead. to make there. Ahead, and so President Trump kind of came in and he really just had a stranglehold over social media he had taken over what was going to be culturally popular uh going forward you know the the people who claimed that you know that the president trump's uh candidacy that whole campaign was like part of the first great meme war and, and now you have all the people who are creating all these memes and to be honest you know, it seems like the left can't meme and the and, and the right is making all the great they memes. Can't and this and is how you're capturing the next generation. And it seems like because of these efforts, efforts uh, Generation true, Z true. is going to be one of the most conservative we've seen in a while. And, and so th this is right. a, the whole point. You know, President Trump was really was the spark that lit this flame. And while it's 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 kind of an ember right now, it's burning. But in order to really have this flame explode and become a huge movement it's like yeah. you really have to win on the content war and that's that's what we're not doing enough of right now of you know producing enough video content and uh, which is both for entertainment purposes you know you should have some entertainment purposes produced by right-wing producers but you should also have as you were saying you know narrative yeah. rich content where it would be helpful to have Sebastian Gorka or someone of similar credentials just talking about and breaking down what is a media narrative, like what what is going on in the world and how how in a sense are is the information you're given by the mainstream media in a sense pushed to make you want to think a certain way. And I think having that would create a very robust media platform for the right wing. Agreed. And, and you know what? It's it's almost like, and, and this goes back to what we were discussing uh, earlier. Um, there seems like there's a lot of energy that is existing because of the repression. Things must balance. So when you put up this um, political correctness construct and you restrict speech and you restrict thought, um, people people want to uh, 
people want to discuss these things. It needs to come up. And, and Trump realized that he was like a prospector and he struck oil or he struck release gas in the earth and he, he split the earth and boom, it came up. And I think it's going to come because there's a market for it. There's a free market of people that want it and they'll buy it. And now we just need people to kind of harness that energy to build the infrastructure to extract it from the earth. And we have people like that doing that. Steve Bannon, Sebastian Gorka. Um, and I think we have the funding, as you mentioned, and we have the demand and we have the desire and we have justice on our side. I'll go, I'll, I'll say that. Um, and so I think, um, I think it is a good thing that uh, Sebastian Gorka and Steve Bannon are working from the outside because I think they've rightly understood that the, the, the greatest way to make an impact on the White House is to capture that movement that was so vibrant during the election because it's organic and it's real and it has legs, it has somewhere to go. There's more energy. Um, and I really look forward to seeing that carried through. I think we're living in exciting times and I think we have, uh, we have a lot of fun of ahead of us because this is nice. We enjoy this. It's proper. It's right. It's rectifying things that are wrong. That always feels good. Um, and we have a lot of fun the way we do it. You know, it's really exciting and, and joking. And we've been we've been lacking yeah, that I, for so long. Who wants to? Yeah, I think this right? is probably a good you know? uh, point to maybe end this episode in a, in a Trump manner. It says we're going to make content great again. And by making content great again, we're going to make America great again. Make America great again from inside the White House or without. Exactly. Thank you all for tuning in into this episode. Thank you.